KPBS On Demand is supported by Rancho La Puerta, which provides wellness retreats for solo travelers and families who enjoy hiking, mindfulness, and fitness classes in a garden setting on 4,000 acres of nature preserve. RanchoLaPuerta.com. So say we From So Say We All on KPBS in San Diego, welcome to Incoming, the series that features true stories from the lives of America's veterans, told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. On today's show, we're talking with two enlisted veterans who rose to the top of their respective fields in civilian life, Navy veteran Chef Jeff Cole, and first up, Army veteran and author Roy Williams Granton, or Dr. Roy Williams Granton, now that he's earned his PhD from Princeton. He's cleaned up and buttoned down his look now to one that fits more his role as a professor at Notre Dame University. But when I first looked him up and heard him read a few years ago, he had a flop of dyed green hair and a band shirt on that pretty much screamed, this is not a person who would ever consider joining the military. But he most certainly did, enlisting in 2002 and serving 14 months in Iraq. After his discharge, he received a lot of recognition as an unsentimental and blunt intellectual on climate change. Most notably for his book, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene. And his novel, War Porn, has been described as one of the most disturbing novels to be written yet about the Iraq War. But thankfully, he doesn't use too many big words, so I was still in my comfort zone while we talked. So let's get on with it then. Please meet Royce Granton. So this is a section from my novel, War Porn, from the Your Leader Will Control Your Fire part of the book. And it's Waking Up in Baghdad. Squeezing the trigger releases the hammer, which strikes the firing pin, causing it to impact the primer. I woke to a dull sky, the air not yet warm. Early sun shot between massive apartment blocks to the east, gleaming off the turquoise dome beyond the north wall of Camp Lancer, gilding palm leaves, turning the streets to light. I crammed my patrol bag in my stuff sack and folded my cot. I went out through the X-taped glass door to the balcony overlooking the courtyard. At the near end were two plastic chairs, and at the far end, Captain Yarrow on his cot in a sleeping mask. I sat down, lit a smoke, and watched the sky brighten behind the mosque's minarets. The city slept. To the north, an orderly middle-class neighborhood, a grid of streets, houses, and yards, cars parked in driveways, shaded sidewalks. Kids played soccer there. To the east and west, thoroughfares lined by shops, market stalls, and cafes. Farther east stood high-rise apartments, but to the west the neighborhood thinned to a desolation of half-built homes and vacant lots bordering the UN compound at the Canal Hotel. Beyond that lay the borders of Sadr City, a warren of low wires and bristling aerials ruled by Alibaba and Shia militias. To the south, beyond the defunct cigarette factory, the city stabbed up. Minarets and smokestacks, the Green Zone's palace spires, Bathist icons, Cyclopean dream sculpture. In the distance, a great blue egg hung against the sky like a fallen planet. This was the only time all day the city breathed softly, evoking in the pale, slanting light imagination's Babylon, letting me feel for a moment like the poet I'd once been. Later, the temperature would top 115. Later, I'd chamber around and prepare to kill. 
Later, the heat and stink of the day, the yelling faces, rancor, noise, and fury broiling and thrumming in waves off the blacktop would make me both want and fear needing a reason to pull my trigger, to feel my grip buck in my hands, to tear jagged red holes in men's flesh. But for a moment, I had white gold serenity glazing still arcades. I prayed in the morning's ease for grace, that I might find it somewhere out there over the wall and down shadowed alleys under arabesques of purpled gold beneath the hovering sun now glaring like a blooded eye. Downstairs I showered in a makeshift stall between two ponchos. I put on the same sweat-stiff DCUs I'd worn the day before. I checked my combat load, made sure I had the BC's MP3 speakers. I did daily maintenance, oil, coolant, transmission fluid, belts, struts, CV joints, tires. I checked the undercarriage for leaks. Heald's pork chop and I headed for breakfast, walking through the shattered central hall of the bombed-out six-story ruin that stood between us and the defac. Wires and collapsed supports hung from the ceiling like vines. Holes blasted in the floor dropped into stinking sub-basements full of soda cans and rot. Pits yawned in dusty corridors littered with rock and paper, the scent of things long dead wafting up from below. Stories of crushed stone loomed overhead, gashed rebar jutting and bristling, rust red through tunnels of light burrowing into the sky, broken granite, twisted metal. Sometimes chips of stone clattered down rubble-choked stairs and we'd flinch, imagining the whole thing collapsing in on us. We came through the shade into a flash of light outside the defac where three sergeants lounged smoking cigars. We cleared our rifles and went inside. We got our food and coffee, slathered our plates with Texas peat, then sat in plastic chairs at plastic tables and watched Fox News on a widescreen TV. Glory. The salt and pepper shakers, the napkins and plastic forks and styrofoam plates, the bad food, the worst coffee, even the ketchup packets and juice boxes glowed sublime, transcendent, essential. I cherished it. I needed it. I relished those eggs and that coffee and the witless ballyhoo on the satellite news, dizzily feeling for a moment like a man in a world where people had opinions about events, a world of APRs and Dow Jones numbers and mortgages and thinking outside the box, a world where celebrities had breakdowns and we complained about cell phone service and no one was trying to blow my legs off. A Humvee burned, caught in the TV's frame like a votive. Honorable Secretary Donald Rumsfeld came on and said we'd reached a turning point. He was followed by a man with moose in his hair standing on the roof of the Palestine Hotel, then a commercial for Viagra. The Hagakure reads, The way of the samurai is found in death. When it comes to either or, there is only the quick choice of death. It is not particularly difficult. Be determined and advance. If by setting one's heart right every morning, one is able to live as though already dead, he gains freedom in the way. I checked my weapon, patted down my armor plates, reminded myself that I was a soldier and this was my job and I would damn well try to die with a little dignity. Beyond the gate, the roads were already thick with cars, the skies hazy with smog. The chaos out there, the crazy Arabic writing and Abu Jabba jabber, the lawless traffic, the hidden danger and buzz and stray bullets and death looming from every overpass pressed down on my soul like a hot wind. On the streets, 
eyes scanning trash for loose wires, I sank into the standard daily manic paranoid torpor. Trapped in a broiling box with big targets on the sides, damned to drive the same maze over and over till somebody killed me. We rolled down Canal Road, our escorts weaving in and out of traffic, our Hemets and Iraqi semis chugging behind. What you want to listen to? Captain Yarrow yelled over the engine. What do you got? I shouted back. He waved his MP3 player at me. All kinds of stuff, he shouted. I shrugged. He pushed a button. The pet shop boys blasted from the speakers, singing West End Girls. Roy Scranton, thanks for being on Incoming. Thanks for uh, having me, Justin. So would you start us off by telling us what was going on in your life at the time you decided to enlist in the Army? Well, uh, I had just moved back to Oregon, where I'm, I'm from, from Utah. Didn't have a college degree, didn't have health insurance. Also, a friend had died in Utah, and September 11th had happened. And so it was this weird, gloomy time. And I'd moved back to Oregon to be closer to, to friends and family, but was having a really hard time getting it together there, finding a job, sort of moving on to the next thing, and wound up living back in my mom's basement. I dropped out of college many years before, in part with the idea of, of being a writer, you know, getting out into the world and, and finding things out and learning how to write from the world, not in a classroom. And that was going nowhere. <laughs> and, uh, and then also, September 11th had, had changed things. I, I'd been a lefty uh, activist before then, and it wasn't, I wouldn't say that I'd, I'd gone right, right wing, or gone pro-war after September 11th, but the world seemed different, and I wanted to understand it better. George Orwell has always been one of my heroes, and one of the things I admire most about him was his willingness to go see it, to go experience, you know, for example, the Civil War in Spain, or when he wrote about coal miners in the road to Wagon Pier, his firsthand effort to see what it, what it looks like. So all these sorts of things, all these different things came together in one moment, and the only choice that seemed right to me was to join the Army. So I did. What point did you feel comfortable deciding you were you had a sense of the story to tell about your experience in the service? I don't, I don't know that I'm comfortable with it now. It's a strange thing to be a veteran and talk about your war or to talk about soldiers because it's this identification thing, right? Like you're identified with it and you're there's sort of this attribution of authenticity with war porn, which I find still have an ambivalent relationship to the novel. It's a, it's a dark complex, heavy novel. I never hoped that it would be a representative story. What I wanted to do with it was to recontextualize the traditional veteran narrative and recontextualize the story of that people were telling about the Iraq war and, and really blow that up and, and be able to look at the way that the Iraq war had these different worlds in it. It had Iraqi worlds and it, and it also had civilian worlds back in the U.S. that connected to you know, the soldier's experience and the, and the Iraqis in Iraq. And it's just all these different worlds that are, are connected through this horrific event or series of events. And that's really what I was trying to open up into the aesthetic form of the novel. I don't know that any part of it was, was, <laughs> was necessarily comfortable. This is a section of my novel, War Porn, titled Babylon. 
the Babylon sections of the novel are the connective tissue that hold the narratives together. And, and I sort of think of them as the like a stream of collective unconscious or sort of like as if the global war on terror could dream. And they're, they're put together with a, um, assemblages of found language from news reports, various statements about prisoner abuse, and also various narratives about the war, ab- about different wars, going back to the Iliad, mixed up and blended together in a, in a way to give the global war on terror its own voice. Nothing is over. This is the story of a long-haired, half-crazed Vietnam vet harassed by small-town lawmen, lost on his one-man mission of vengeance. Back in the war, he was part of a ragtag team of misfit soldiers handpicked for a suicide mission to kill Hitler. Good and evil. He's a downed fighter pilot. He's red and white and blue. This is the story of the sword, gun, dawn, patrols, blacktop sick, guided in a bad hundred feet, drowned, gulf, military units added to the brass shell dogs devour battle. So they too were made of vanity in 72 hours not from the stories of previous wars. Violence inflicted on the largest burden themselves, some of which depicted pyramids and the rest shocked of no man's land. Lee Marvin leads a ragtag gang of misfits through the hell of war and loss of innocence as they fight for freedom in America from the deserts of North Africa to the forests of Germany. He's an idealistic young officer leading his all-black regiment on a suicide attack on a coastal fortress. No man, through me, tell the story of one man's rage and the raising of an ancient city. He's an idealistic young officer charged with cowardice for refusing to send his men to their death on a suicide attack. New reports. Electricity. Widening the circle of direct blame for shooting it up my ass. On first setting eyes, alas, my son, harassed by small town artillery emplacements, a bridge no more. Night and day did I glory in misfits handpicked and leads a ragtag bunch of strength to all in Troy, both men and hell, from the glory. A young man discovers commando war nothing, for no one pilot develops a tenuous ragtag bunch of all-American right hand like a lizard, but that's not hell. A bunch of ragtag boots lying like getting my machine impression of his wife, the flow, I mean, when I voted for hell, horses in administrative succession, running the Achaeans divide the fate, detainee sevens allegations, a tale of courage and honor, loyalty, grace under pressure, and the will to win. He's a young, dedicated soldier sent up the river to kill a rogue agent. He's a drunk, grizzled vet sergeant fighting bureaucratic bullpucky to transform a ragtag bunch of misfits into a steely band of killers, leading them to glory in the assault on Granada. The allegations of this man alone, unsupported, allegations of abuse, his statements available, Peleus, for he is mightier than you. Nevertheless, intel interests dogs and vultures, and a load of grief would be lifted from my damaged Iraq's eyewitness reports. Life, both Iraqis cried, the British Academy has committed Muslims. Like people attacking a library. Ragtag. A young glory. An army special forces operative goes up the river. A young man joins the Marines and becomes a photographer and is sent to Vietnam and learns that war is hell, is hell. War story. A retired special forces operative returns to Vietnam to rescue his POW buddies. This is the story of the center in Washington, D.C., where he practiced for conventions of war, where rules had no way to confirm they were the war near equipment in civilian areas, maintaining Abu Ghraib largely with Iraqis of no intelligence a lot firmer, particularly his own military, a final atrocity exploited for detainees were meant to be exploited for. Many shops know coalition forces prisoners scooped up in this way soon 
flooded the keepers, taken all the campaign. On the harsh terrain of disadvantages, nighttime sweeps gave Saddam 48 hours on the harsh terrain of detainees at Abu Ghraib, whomsoever Allah overcrowding difficulties, the Iraqi Academy of Physical Abuse while stuck here. This is a story of we happy stuck here. This is the story of a ragtag bunch of misfits picked for a suicide mission to stuck here. A young man from the ragtag clutches. A noble professional special forces commando learns that war is young. A young hell and ragtag bunch of all-American misfits fight Japs in the South Pacific and learn war is war. A bunch ragtag of young ragtag learn the true meaning of discipline and camaraderie in war and war. A young maverick risks everything to save his father from the Libyans. A ragtag bunch of Australians go halfway across the world and learn war is, is. This is the story, ragtag young man. Stuck here. Stuck here. This is the story of valor, duty, and the cost of war. A young camaraderie. This is the story of a young man who learns war always has a cost. A young wacky. This is the story of a wacky bunch of ragtag misfits trying to escape from Nazi prison. A wacky bunch of ragtag misfits running an army hospital in Korea. A ragtag maverick valor war. This is the story of a young man's war. The story of We Happy Few. Welcome back to Incoming and our guest, Army veteran and novelist Roy Scranton. What made you decide that your first book should be a novel as opposed to a memoir, the need to bring in all of the multifaceted voices and paint a more complete picture of the conflict rather than just a soldier point of view? When I was shopping earlier versions of War Porn, I, I talked to agents and, and editors who wanted me to, to turn take the Wilson section and turn that into a memoir and, and send that to them. And not to speak ill of soldiers memoirs there's a lot of great ones out there there was something more i i wanted to do i felt i needed to do that, that had to be done this that bigger story that had to be told i'm reading from my novel war porn the section of the book titled strange hells lifting the flowers letting them drop asters and chrysanthemums zinnias and goldenrod extravagant for a barbecue maybe but screw it a little reckless beauty my mark on rock face Remember, you're the one who pulled yourself together and you're the one who changes tires. You're the one who rode out here with him and now you're the one who's waiting. I was all state soccer once, MVP. I can read stress lines and bones dug from mass graves. We know what comes next. We fly home, I teach and go back to school, I have his baby, that's the plan. But here I am killing time and going a little crazy. Why are we still here? Dahlia fussed with the flowers, their separate stems, the whole bouquet. That friend Wendy was bringing, Aaron, had just come back, she'd said. What would it feel like to do something like that? Break a world in two and walk away. Would it change you? Had it? She looked at Matt out through the window, sitting there in his lawn chair drinking beer, his face in the fading sun so kind, his wounded eyes, his belly. He doesn't see her, lost in thought like he is so often. And just who is this man of mine? Who's this guy desiccating in the scrub grass? Brought me to the desert like a Mormon wife. Who's come this far for what? Who's doing what? And what is he, this man? What kind of man? The question's a cool black stone. 
She washed her hands, took the parsley from the colander to the counter and daubed it dry, then picked up her vustov santoku and cut. Of the many sections in war porn that are told from the soldier's perspective, a lot of time is spent highlighting how mundane it is to be a soldier and the business of soldiering is and how futile it can be. And when I read those sections, I really connected them to this refrain I've heard you make in certain interviews and a lot of your contemporaries have made that it's important as a writer, a veteran writer especially, not to fall into this trap of portraying service members as heroes because it does a disservice to them, it dehumanizes them, and it does a disservice to the American public also because you know, we can't have a society that has big kid perspectives about conflict as long as we talk about it in terms of heroes and villains. And I was wondering when you sat down, you know, how much antagonism did you come into writing this book with that concept of heroism? So I grew up in a military family. My father was in the Navy. My grandfather was in the Navy. Uh, uncle's in the Navy and the, the Army National Guard. And I also grew up consuming war literature, war movies, war culture to an insane amount. And so by, you know, by the time it came time to write this book, I'm invested in a whole culture and a whole genre that isn't even necessarily about contemporary American politics, right? Which is partly antagonistic. It's partly revisionary. It's partly talking about the military as a job, a dirty, exploitative, messy, nasty, working-class job, right, with, with exactly that much glamour to it. So that's all, that's all already there before even I was shocked by how much Americans in 2003, 2004, but it still goes on today, how much Americans were worshiping soldiers and veterans and American militarism. I don't know that I, I was resentful of it, but it was shocking and disturbing as a, a citizen and a writer and a, a thinker. And it was disturbing to be on the receiving end of that when I don't feel like what I'd been a part of in Iraq was especially heroic. So there's a complicated set of things there that motivating in writing war porn both political, but also having to do with growing up in a military family and having a deep sense of the war story as a genre. Let me ask you what you feel now is the story that needs to be told most about conflict. Is that an American story, or is, or can it only really be found on the other side with Iraqi and Afghani writers? I do think we should read more Iraqi and Afghan writers and Syrian writers and writers in the Middle East generally. I think we haven't, we meaning um, Americans, American readers, American consumers of, of literary fiction, haven't made enough of an effort to really engage with Arabic, Muslim, and Middle Eastern culture. But that's not the answer to your question. I think, I think the thing that we're, we're struggling with now or a thing that we're going to be struggling with over the next you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years is the topic of my other book, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, which is how climate change is going to be a conflict driver. And we already see this in Syria right now. We face this difficult situation where not only are the traditional sort of nationalist concerns around 
war literature in a for a particular country, right? The an American war story. What does the war to mean to America? Not only are those not adequate and not actually not very helpful, we don't even have a good frame or a good way to make sense of the way conflict is going to continue to erupt and become more and more of a destabilizing factor in our lives generally as catastrophic climate change continues to drive more and more conflict through drought and floods and, and all kinds of things. And so that's the part I see people who are trying to make sense of the world through writing that they're going to be struggling with in the next decade. It sends me back to thinking about people trying to write about enormous cataclysms like the Second World War or the Holocaust. And I worry that might be where we're going to. I'm kind of hating myself for even having to reference social media here, but I, I wanted to ask you about a comment I saw you make, and I'm paraphrasing you, so feel free to correct me, but it was something to the effect of, please tell me about your moral injury that came about from being a stormtrooper. Yeah, I think I tweeted something like, the last thing we need is another story by a, an Imperial stormtrooper crying about their moral injury or... Or something like that. <laughs> well, and I brought it up because right around the same time I was interviewing Matt Young, who was talking about the importance of writing about zip-tying the thumbs of 17-year-olds who were the wrong target, and which was, mm -hmm. which was he said was em emblematic of his entire military experience. And so I wanted to ask you yeah. more about that. There's a genre in Israeli culture, a genre of, of memoirs and movies that they call the shoot and cry. Right. I mean, we know what the genre is. It's about soldiers who do bad things and then feel bad about it. There's nothing wrong with that inherently, with witnessing one's participation in things that you feel bad about later. My snarky tweet isn't about the simple act of witnessing. It's about the way that it becomes a narrative. It's about the way that it becomes a way that we explain war to ourselves. For the United States, for people in the United States to focus on, for example, to focus on the moral injury of American soldiers in Iraq seems a little bit insane to me. Or, you know, more honestly, it seems a way of managing our collective sense of blood guilt and our collective sense of horror at what we'd done, which, is, which was to invade a sovereign nation on a pretext of lies, completely destroy it, torture people, kill tens of thousands of people, so many people we killed, we don't even know how many, and then leave the country in a shambles. That's what America did. And as an American, I, I am completely ashamed by that. I think we still haven't come to terms with that, this aggressive invasion of a, of a sovereign nation and the complete dismantling of a culture. The way that we deal with that is by focusing on not on the, all the Iraqis who were killed or whose lives were completely destroyed or what's happening there now, but to focus on the American soldiers who have been traumatized or who have their moral injury. We can focus on those stories and then we can feel bad that we sent our boys over there to be traumatized. We can feel bad that they had to do horrible things. And that, that takes the guilt off our hands, right? The soldier then gets to carry it. That's the problem I have is this way that we we turn the trauma hero narrative into a way of, of making the war okay with ourselves. Like a self-absolution. Exactly, yeah. Now I'm reading from the section of my novel, War Porn, titled The Fall. Day and night, bombs crashed into Baghdad. 
You watched it on TV, you heard it on the radio, you saw it from the roof and when you ventured out into the street. Soldiers and civilians, arms and legs roasting, broken by falling stone, intestines spilling onto concrete, homes and barracks, walls ripped open, Bathists and Islamists, communists and social democrats, grocers, tailors, construction workers, nurses, teachers, all scurrying to hide in dim burrows where they would wait to die, as many died, some slowly from disease and infection, others quick in bursts of light, thickets of tumbling steel, halos of dust, crushed by the world's greatest army. As the bombing grew worse, the terror of it stained every living moment. Sleep was a fractured nightmare of the day before, cut short by another raid. Stillness and quiet didn't mean peace, only more hours of anxious waiting or death. Even the comfort of family rubbed raw. Maha sat in her room listening to Britney Spears and Brandy, wishing she was anywhere else. This war was going to ruin her life, she knew it. It was going to ruin her chances for marriage, it was going to ruin everything. Her skin was breaking out, her hair frizzing and splitting. She stood at her window and gazed through the slit between the two pieces of plywood nailed over the glass and watched smoke drift over her city, and the smoke was her future fading to haze. She started hitting Nazaha hard. She hated how her sister kept praying, stupid praying to stupid God like it would do anything. She hated her mother and father, her sick cousin Kasim, whom she had to keep nursing, creepy old Othman, her sisters. She hated her mother's patience and stillness. She hated Warda's incessant singing and Kalida's watchful eyes. They were all conspiring against her. None of them understood how terrible it was to have her life ruined at 17, before she was married, before she'd even fallen in love. She stood at her window and gazed through the slit between the two pieces of wood and watched flames burn along the skyline, half hoping she'd see it all devoured. fell on the city. Day and night, smoke clouded the sky and the sun blazed like blood. Sometimes air raid sirens would break the heavens with wailing and all across the city people would drop what they were doing and hide. Then the sirens would subside and no bombs would fall. Then the all clear would sound or not while anti-aircraft guns hacked at the empty gray. What people grew to depend on was the mosque. After every bombing, out from the many minarets across the city the muazzin would sound Allahu Akbar, la ilaha illallah, and more bombs fell on the city. Warda kept herself busy. She could not bear to be still. As soon as she stopped moving, her mind bloomed with grim thoughts of her husband and her boys. She could not bear to think of her little Siraj, lifeless and torn, her Abdul Majid, who cried and fussed so much, falling quiet forever. It was an emptiness, the depths of which Warda refused to peer into. To lose her beloved Ratib, whose skin she adored, whose hips and back and shoulders she clung to, whose lips and cheeks and eyebrows she loved so dearly they made her ache, after all their struggles, would be losing the world. So she mended. She cleaned. She baked. She'd watch movies sometimes with the family, a little, but her mind wandered and after a few minutes she'd get up and find something else to do. She reorganized the kitchen and the closets. She dusted behind the TV. And she sang, quietly, songs from her childhood in a soft and lilting voice that sounded through the house, soothing the family. 
They couldn't see the horror behind her gentle eyes, couldn't hear how her songs were only noise to hush an endless silence, so they were calmed by them, and this, in turn, helped calm Warda. So she kept singing. And sometimes, as she sang, she could even imagine a future. She might go back to work for the Ministry of Trade, where she'd worked before Abdul Majid had been born. She might vote. She might grow old with Ratib, watch her sons become men, watch them go to college, have careers and wives of their own. She might live to see her grandchildren born. And more bombs fell on the city. Bread prices doubled, tripled, quadrupled. There was no propane. There was no benzene. The satellite went in and out, and eventually Iraq TV shut down. But the radio still played patriotic songs and reports of the Americans' defeat. When they could, they watched CNN or Al Jazeera. They watched balls of fire rise up in the night across the Dijla, red and gold flowers blooming in the black water. They saw their city in green from above in videos made by the men who were killing them, bright neon stripes cutting the screen, pale green explosions below. They watched TV reporters in Kuwait, Qatar, and Israel put on gas masks. They watched American tanks push across their desert. They watched Iraqi soldiers surrender. They watched Iraqi soldiers die. They watched their brothers and husbands and sons forced to their knees and thrown like trash into the backs of trucks, blindfolded and hogtied. On Al Jazeera, they saw children in rubble, ruptured bodies leaking like cracked pomegranates. On CNN, they saw generals pointing at big maps full of arrows. Allahu Akbar, cried the Muezzin. La ilaha illallah. And more bombs fell. Nazaha prayed. She bore the abuse of her sister, the discomforts when there was no light, no electricity, or no water. She bore the tremor of fear. She bore it all, praying constantly to God and the Prophet, to Khadijah, the Prophet's wife, to Fatima, the Prophet's daughter, and to Michael Jackson. God was testing them, just as he tested the Prophet, and she would show him her heart's recitation. So devout in her prayer was she that her absent-mindedness grew worse than ever. She let the kettle boil over. She burned bread. She forgot to give Qasim his antibiotic. She swept up the kitchen and left a small, tidy pile of dirt in the middle of the floor. Her mother chided her. Khalida snapped at her. Maha hit her. And Nazaha prayed for forgiveness and mercy. She prayed to be less absent-minded. She prayed for God to make her eyebrows less bushy. She prayed for God to keep them all safe. It was hard with all the fear in the house to feel the nearness of God. More and more, she spent her time alone, writing out prayers on slips of paper, reading the Quran and books on the Sirah and the Hadith, and a book from the 70s about pan-Islamism. She drew secret pictures of the Prophet and Michael Jackson riding together on Barak, the white-winged, woman-faced horse that carried the Prophet on the Isra and Mirage. She pictured the Prophet and Michael Jackson walking together in the desert, holding hands, Fatima looking suspiciously like Nazaha herself walking behind them. She imagined they spoke together of the jagged beauty of palm trees and the buzz of bees, the way honey dripped clear and gold on flatbread, her father's smell when he'd been smoking, and of how the purity of God's mercy would conquer all. How great God was to have given us such a world with red tomatoes and green reeds and the great brown dijla, the wonder of the muezzin's call and the glory of thriller, the perfection of breakfast at breakfast time, tea at tea time, and bed at bedtime. Nazaha prayed in ecstasies of gratitude that she was alive and that God had made the world and that the world was so perfect and full. And more bombs fell. The lights went out. The electricity went out. The water stopped running. It came back on. It shut off again. 
They began to leave candles everywhere and matches. They went to bed just after sundown, even though they knew they wouldn't sleep through the night, and arose at dawn, lethargic and anxious from the night's thundering bombardments. There was nothing else to do with the power off and on but lie in their misery and fear. Allahu Akbar, cried the Muazin, la ilaha illallah. Day and night, bombs, rockets, and missiles crashed down into Baghdad, erupting in plumes of smoke, strewing metal and screaming wounded. And they watched CNN, Al Jazeera, and the BBC. And they saw their city burning. They watched their husbands, sons, and brothers shot, captured, shamed, dishonored. They watched Umm Qasr fall. They watched Basra fall. They watched Anasariya fall. They watched Karbala fall. They huddled around a map, listening to the rumors on the news, trying to see how far the Americans had come. Welcome back to Incoming, where we're speaking with Army veteran Roy Scranton, author of the novel War Porn and the book Learning to Die in the Anthropocene. What's the most dangerous misconception you feel like civilian society has about conflict in their military? I think the most dangerous conception civilians have about American civilians have about the military and soldiering is that is that it's separate from their lives. Is that it's something different, or that it's somehow that somehow there's a military civilian gap, and and the civilians are on one side and the military is on the other. They're not separate. It's the military is. Uh, part of American capitalism and part of the lives we live here. And being in the military, being a soldier, a soldier is a job, you know, like I said before, it's a job like a garbage man or, or a barista. And it's pernicious and dangerous to insist, as so many of us do, that it's actually something else. It's some kind of special sacrifice. Even even the use of the term service, and I and I think service means something. You know, I again, I come from a military family, and so the idea of service is important. And I do think there's there is definitely a sense that you're participating in something larger. But I think the sad fact is that that sense of service is used. It's useful to the people who decide, you know, what the military needs to do and where it needs to go and who it needs to bomb, right? The military doesn't serve the American people. It serves the American government. And that's something that we need to keep in mind when we, you know, we're walking through the airport and there's the big signs about how great soldiers are and, and they're selling insurance or whatever. Like, we've really come to worship, uh, to valorize, to, to, we have this unhealthy adulation for soldiers, I think in part because this idea that, that it's, this, it's this other special thing. And we got to get over that because it's, it's, it's bad for us as citizens. It's bad for America. It's bad for democracy. And I think it can't help but glorify war. On your point about the insurance the insurance companies that are so quick to put up men and women in uniform on their billboards and in their commercials. Do you think being a veteran has been commercialized? Totally. Yeah. I, I very much think it has. Uh, yes. <laughs> so my last question is, if you were standing in front of a service member who was about to rotate out in about six months, say, and you could give them one piece of advice, what advice could you give about the transition to civilian life when they were finally out? Have a plan. I would say it's so 
that's a great question because transitioning is 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 very difficult for a lot of a lot of guys. It's I think it's difficult for for almost everybody coming out of the military, especially for women, men and women who went in younger and then get out. The one piece of advice I would say would be to have a have a plan, have a goal to aim for after you transition out of the military because it's it's easy to fall into being a veteran and there's a lot that's interesting and cool about being a veteran but it's not it's not a career it's not a life right like it should be part of your life but not who you are you got to become someone else you got to find a job or find some some way to create something new in your life and i think you do that by by having a a clear goal that you aim for dr roy williams granton thanks so much for being on incoming i appreciate it Thanks for having me on, Justin. It's been a great conversation. Our second guest this hour is Navy veteran chef Jeff Cole, who joined the Navy from Brooklyn and was promptly assigned to the kitchen making omelets for 3,500 Marines and sailors a day during Operation Enduring Freedom in Iraq. A few twists of fate later, and he had risen to the position of the commanding officer's personal chef by the time of his discharge, going on to become a restaurateur and designated as chef de cuisine by the American Culinary Federation. He told me all about how it happened and what he's gone on to do since when I sat down with him and his son here at KPBS, and now you get to hear it. Please meet Chef Jeff Cole. Chef Jeff Cole, thank you so much for joining us on Incoming. Thank you for having me. So we usually like to start off by having our guests explain to us where they were in life and what motivated them to join the military in the very first place. Wow. Yeah, that's, you know, it goes deep. Most enlisted folks, um, you know, we don't come from a spoon in our mouth while we join the military, right? right? It's enlisted, right? Uh, families Jamaican. You know, came in the came up here in the eighties. I was um first born American in my family, born in Miami. Uh grew up in inner city, Brooklyn, New York, right? I always wanted more out of life. Um, finished up high school down in Daytona Beach, Florida. Afterwards worked a little construction and um I was I knew I wanted more but I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, didn't have that many role models in my life at the time either. I wasn't that great at sports. <laughs> uh, you know, six <laughs> two, two seventy, but never that great at sports. So but um you know, I, I was cooking in high school, and I, I joined the military one day. Never know I wanted to be a cook in the military, but I joined. I said, you know what? I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure out what I want to do while I'm in the military. And it worked out 13 years later. <laughs> <laughs> it's that military yeah. job placement strategy. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so uh, after boot camp, how long did you take to kind of discover and land where you landed in the kitchen? Well, you know, it was weird. Um, I was in Bucay. I remember Great Lakes. I was there in cold. I was there um, November through February in Great Lakes, Chicago. Real cold. I, went, I remember I went to um, Conlery School in um, San Antonio, uh, MSA school. So when I when I got to my first ship, you know they they put me in omelets. I I, I told they, the recruiter lied to me the whole time I'm in the Navy. I'm talking about what the recruiter said, and everybody the recruiters said, lie. Yeah, yeah so. <laughs> It's nothing to do with what the recruiter told you. The recruiter, the recruiter said, "Hey, um, you're going to be a, um, a, a culinary specialist now. They're saying you the guys the culinary school. You're going to be managing the kitchen like a dining facility, 
And if you don't want to do that, you can manage the housing. So like a like apartment managers, like you know, so I'm like, cool. I just do the apartment manager side. You know, I don't really want to cook. And you know, I got in this. We talking about do your cook. So they put me in omelets. The ship had um with Marines on board. We had about 3,500 people on board. USS Bellawood. That was 2002. I was on the ship. And making omelets for 3,500 people, right? So it was about four people on the grill, two on each side. And everybody wants eggs to order for breakfast. That was my first experience. Being at work at 4 in the morning and getting off at 7 at night. I said, I hated it. I'm talking about, I said, how can I quit? <laughs> I hated the smell. Of, I hated cooking. It was, it was rough. But I used that um, reverse psychiatrist that um, somebody told me in boot camp one time. said, every day if you say you hate what you do, you're going to hate it mentally. So just say you love it. So you're like, I love what I do. I can't wait to cook. Right. I, you know, just I really try to train myself to doing that, working every day nonstop, 4 in the morning at 7 at night. Sometimes we get off at 10 at night because we had to do extra cleaning at night. And um, I just became good at what I did. And afterwards, they put me. They, they had me cook for the um, cook for the captain. And then late nights at night, I used to cook for some of my shipmates. You know, I used to um, make some um, comfort food at night, Jamaican comfort food, call it um, curry chicken. And then he put on the menu for the whole entire ship, Cole's curry chicken. So it was like it was crazy. I was rising from nothing to hating my job to they had my name in the menu for 3,500 troops. <laughs> yeah, so back us up because, you know, the military cuisine, especially on ship or in, you know, uh, base cooking, basically, like it's not known for being the most creative, no. explorative <laughs> food out there. You know, it's typically seen as kind of at best cafe food. So tell us the story of that evening where um, you did kind of get to do a little improvisation, <laughs> turn a little jazz in the kitchen. Yeah. Well, that, I don't think that did it, but when I when I did the jazz, when the culinary special, when I did the curry chicken, a lot of people loved it, right? Right. It was a home dish. How did word go up the ladder to get you that invitation from the captain to cook for him? You know what? When I was cooking, when I was doing the curry chicken at night, um, so I was, I was a night cook before I worked the captain. I was a night cook, um, you know, doing the graveyard shift. And I had like five buddies, you know, we just... So it's like, hey, you know, start making them stuff. Tell them about power. You have power as a cook of the ship, right? So just to get a cheeseburger or a quesadilla, I had my, I remember I had my own brick phone and I, anything I had electric, things that you would think about, being able to call somebody whenever you want to, I had that power. I had the power of having an electrical socket next to my bed. That's huge. But I'm, I'm, I started, you know, doing the cooking and it started at three, four people, my, my, my close friends, my five was, and then it grew to about, 30 people in the mess that's surrounding him. And um, it got word to my um, the warrant officer um, the following day. He said, hey, I heard you're making some food at night. What are you doing? And I'm like, whoa, I thought I was in trouble. He said, well, make me a sample now. And um, I made the sample. He said, hey, now you got to make a recipe for it to put it on the menu. And that was tough. So I learned how to make my own recipe and portion out to 100 persons. So it was it was cool. But that's how the word got out. That's how you're learning, to, you're learning how to create and scale right there, yes, right? Yes. <laughs> You'll be surprised. Learning how to cook for so many people in large amounts, you learn all the basic things you need to know. And then you fast forward to when you go to um, a, a school to learn how to make cook for one person. So you're cooking for 3,500 people, right? And like, oh, now I got to cook for like, I'm cooking for five people. And cooking for five people is harder than cooking for the massive amount. But you learn all the basic culinary skills when you're doing that. So now I know how to make a gravy, right? Like you'd be surprised. A lot of cooks don't know how to make a sauce, a gravy, right? But you know how to do that. You've been doing it for so long. You know the temperatures. You know things. 
but now you got to fine tune it and make it make it right. So the first time um, while I was on cooking for the, the captain, I was on a ship and you know he was like, hey, he's having a, a, a he have some guests on board. It was about um, twelve people, and I had to make a gourmet meal. So I'm like, and I, you know, I'm gonna still on the ship, still not know how to do that. Yeah, we're out to sea. So me and this um, other CS2, the same class E5, we got this um, cookbook and we looked, you know, we looked at it. I remember it was a, like a citrus, um, it was a citrus um, salad over halibut, and we followed to the T, and you know he loved it. When we went up yeah. to the point where you're cooking not just for the captain but his guests, like those those are real steaks, right? Like no, no, everything is rich. Yeah, it's right. rough. It's yeah. We can we can order certain food and items, but um, tough part is like you see you're overseas and uh, you're in South America, you got to shop there, right? Even I was on private jets. Got to fly around, and so you're shopping for foods, and you ask for fish, and they might give you a whole fish. Ah, but now you got to fillet it. You got you teaching yourself how to be more creative and, and be better. So, um, those were the, the tough meals were cooking for the captain because you know you make an impression on him, and he got his ambassadors on board, and um, sometimes president like Chile, somebody's on board. You know, you got to use your skills to impress his guests. Talk to us about how the ports of call, where you went, and how that ended up kind of broadening your menu for yourself and yeah. influencing you as a chef. Yeah, um, it's, it's weird uh, being able to adapt. So, you know, coming from the military, had no culinary skills whatsoever. First port was San Diego for two years. Learned how to make majority Mexican and Filipino dishes, right? Um, later on in life, going to the Philippines and seeing, you know, the actual the tradition and cooking on an airplane for, you know, Secretary of Navy for um, the Pacific Forces. Sometimes we go into a hotel, um, there's nowhere for you to prep. You might ask the, the, the kitchen, like, hey, can I prep some food in your kitchen? And you're kind of working side by side with these guys in the country, you know. So living in Hawaii for three years. I lived in Sicily for two years. Then going to Florida, living in Florida, learning a lot of Southern dishes, um, Creole dishes in Jacksonville, Florida, more Caribbean dishes. So just being in an area where living in Hawaii, then traveling the whole Pacific area, going to Japan all the time, going to the Philippines, going to Singapore, and you know trying out the tra- traditional meals while I learned how to make them in the country was unique. So in a way, I guess the recruiter wasn't totally lying. Like the, yeah. Navy, the Navy did send you to culinary school. They sent me to yeah, they sent me to culinary school, but it's it's the long way around. The long way around, and um. <laughs> I used it as an advantage. I, I didn't like deploying, and I didn't like um, I didn't like working those long hours, right? The crazy hours. I tried to figure out how to get out of those crazy hours of work. One of the things were when you became real good as, as a chef and you were really respected, you know, you're only working for the captain, and you're on his schedule. Make, you might make just lunch every day. Uh, coming to work at six at seven thirty is a great feeling. I don't got to be working at seven thirty. I get off at, at fifteen hundred, three o'clock when everybody else is get off. It was great. So when you did, after 17 years, talk to us about how you transitioned back. I mean, did you immediately know you wanted to go into the restaurant business for yourself, or was there a stumble period, and how did you bring what you'd learned to private practice? Yeah, well, it was 13 years about what oh, I did. 13 years. Yeah. Um, well, I got a taste of it while I was still in the military. I started my company a year before I got out, and when I found out that um, my skills as a chef in the Navy was way more diverse than regular chefs out, out in town, it was a big eye-opener. You know, in the Navy, when you don't have hot dog buns, you have to make it, right? So we're in the middle of the ocean, and they got hot dog and hamburger. We have to make the buns. A lot of people in the civilian sector are very good at one area. 
they're not that diverse. They they stay in that one area, and the tools are always there for you to use it. It being a navy when you're when you're out to sea, in different ports, you don't always have the tools that you need to make it work. And then I also learned how to do inventory, learn how to do, um, how to manage from the outside. So I learned a, a lot to use my skills into the civilian world I do now. So I'm like, hey, you know what? The navy already taught me to be great. Let me just be great at what they taught me how to do in the civilian sector. So that's how it worked. Where was your first restaurant? This is Admiral's Choice or? The Admiral's Experience? Admiral's so, Experience. man, you know, my first restaurant really was in the backyard of my cousin's house. I did a pop-up dinner. I said, I really want a restaurant really bad. I don't have the financials to do it. Don't know how to do it. I want to do a pop-up. I remember going to different locations like, hey, man, I want to do a pop-up. Can I use your restaurant on the off day and blah, blah, blah. And everybody, nobody, everybody was shaking their head. I said, okay. So my cousin had a nice backyard in the college area overseeing the, um, the valley and the hills. I charge everybody with 50 bucks a person. And I says, I have a, I have a restaurant in a secret location. Got tables and chairs outside. Um, I did good. You know, I mark, trying to market it myself. So, of course, you have people out there who want to support you. My goal was to have 20 people. I sold by 11 tickets and got nine fillers. So you never want to make it seem like um, nobody showed up to the party that you, that you hosted. So you know what? I learned earlier. I said, take, that, take my investment, and I'm going to stick to doing 20 people. And um, family and friends sit in, enjoy the meal. And that was the first experience. And it was people actually loved it. When you did transition into opening uh, Admiral's Experience, talk to me about what motivated you to call it that and what the ideology was behind it. Well, when I got out of the Navy, even when I was in the Navy, um, cooking for Admiral is something that a lot of people don't have the experience. Some people don't even get to even see one while they're in the military sometimes, right? I was cooking for four-star Admirals. You know, people that work directly for the president. Because we're in a G5, we're in a Gulfstream airplane. You want to know, how does an admiral eat? So I'm like, you know, I'm going to give everybody the experience of being an admiral for a day. What were you making for the admiral, if you don't mind breaking us into the secret? <laughs> you have to do research. You don't have time to actually ask him what he's going to eat. So you have to ask get his assistant and say, hey, what is the admiral like? What's his allergies? What's his favorite dishes? Is he on a diet? You could do all your homework on him first. And when you do your homework, some of them are easy, some of them are really tight. I remember we had an admiral, his wife didn't like, um, she needed gummy beers or she didn't like to see chocolate. So we had to make sure all the chocolate was out of there and have gummy beers on board. Some of the, the craziest dishes was unique, so I, I cooked for the general of, of Korean forces. So they had to fly our plane out from Hawaii to go down to South Korea to pick him up. So I don't know if you remember when that North Korea ship bombed South Korea in like, what was it, like 13, 2013, something like that. So he had to go to report to the president, and there was no planes, that, no secret planes that could take him there. Like, um, not secret planes, but with the, the proper security on it. So we flew from Hawaii to South Korea to pick him up and, you know, take him one shot. So if he left from South Korea, and he could do a one shot over to Alaska and make his way down to um, D.C. in one shot, right? Just stop for fuel in Alaska. Um, like going over the globe. I remember I was on the plane and um, I, get, I was making a salmon salad and I forgot the salad dressing. And we're on our last leg. We're 50,000 feet in the sky, have no salad dressing. So <laughs> I looked in the, I looked there, there. I seen some breakfast items. I seen a little bit of, you know, the seasoning and I had olive oil there. So I'm like, all right. And um, I made a materiaki vinaigrette salad. Never heard of it. I tasted it, tasted, I tasted all right. I like think it could work. And afterwards he said, wow, that's the best salad I ever had. <laughs> right? 
Because you can't give him salad with no salad dressing, and they were 50,000 feet. And he had other things in his mind, like the black phone's ringing, the red phone's ringing, a lot going on. I actually bottle that up now. So, teriyaki vinaigrette. Put that in your line, too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you perform well under stress, obviously. That's yes, very yes, much. yes. So, it sounds like you're almost creating, like, character profiles of people, you know, yeah. when you're identifying their stuff. It reminds me of, like, FBI profiling, but for their stomachs. Yes, it is. So the last question I always like to ask people uh, before we sign off is, if a man or woman was about to term out of the military and you could give them one piece of advice, what do you think it would be? Stick to what you was taught at, what you know. Um, I was just talking to um, a business friend of mine, and um, a lot of people out there are looking for people who know how to do their job. You have the, you're a subject matter expert in a certain field. Why switch? You know, you already know it. All right, Chef Jeff Cole, thank you so much for being on Incoming. All right, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. That's our show. We hope you enjoyed yourself. If you're still in the armed forces, I hope your base commander brings Jeff Cole and his team out to cook for you. And if you're a reader of words, go pick up Roy Scranton's books and Google up some of his essays online. You'll be better off having done so. I especially recommend his New York Times article titled Star Wars and the Fantasy of American Violence. It's a good read. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnell. Jennifer Pepperpot Corley is our editor and sound designer. At KPBS, Kirk Conan is our audio engineer. Lisa Morissette Zapp is operations manager. John Decker is director of programming. And Nate John is our millennial innovation specialist whose healthy glow will surely carry him through the Anthropocene unscathed. Music used in the scoring of Roy Scranton's story Baghdad was by Blue Dot Sessions. For Strange Hells, you heard a composition from Fernando Soar. And for Roy's story, The Fall, we used David Hillowitz. Support for Incoming comes from the KPBS Explorer Program, the California Arts Council's Veterans Initiative in the Arts, Cal Humanities, and supporting members of So Say We All. Learn more about us at our website at sosayweallonline.com, and we'd love it if you'd drop us a line via email and share your thoughts at info at sosayweallonline.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon, if the Anthropocene doesn't get us all. KPBS On Demand is supported by Republic Services, providing recycling and waste solutions in San Diego for decades. Californians will soon be required to recycle organic waste. Republic Services will divert those organics away from landfills back into the community for composting use. Learn more at republicservices.com slash San Diego County CA.